Welcome to episode 35 of Developer Melange, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Melange brings you regular discussions about everything software development. You can find us online on developermelange.com and you can follow us on Twitter via at devmelange. That's Dev M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about this show or the podcast itself. So please reach out for us on Twitter or leave your comments on our website. We appreciate all of your feedback. If you'd like to pay for our drinks in a future episode, please contact us. And now, here are your hosts. My name is Christian Haas. I am a developer who embraces extreme programming. My name is David Leitner. I'm co-founder of Square Solutions, a really software company, and describe myself as an enthusiastic software professional who is working on various projects using a bunch of different stacks and environments. Our today's guest is an amazing track recording, helping companies to profit sooner from the software projects and in general to help developers in becoming better at their craft. Via GBRange.ca, that stands for Canada, he provides a first-class online course about TDD. I did this training on my own and I can fully recommend it and truly, and it truly lives up to its reputation as the world's best TDD training. I first met him in Kosice a few years ago and was immediately amazed by his on-point communication skills when it comes to technical topics and his seeming infinity deep knowledge in the field of software practices. And of course, there's seven minutes, 26 seconds, and the fundamental theorem of HL software development. One of the best talks I've ever seen, and there's quite a few. If you have not seen it so far, definitely look it up. I had a link to the show notes. With all this said, and without any further ado, welcome to DevMelange, J.B. Rainsberger. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And and uh, I now realize that I came here and I forgot to bring a melange with me. So I could have <laughs> made one and had it here sitting, but now I just have to drink water, which you know it and, could be worse. And, and of course, just to be uh, to be fully polite, if you want to add anything to the intro, yeah, feel free to add it now. Yeah. Uh, well, I you know I I don't really want to add too much. Um, I'm, of course, happy to say uh, that the world's best introduction to, the TD, to TDD can be found at tdd.training. Yeah, I, you know, uh, it's funny. No, we were talking a little bit before we, before we started recording about how sort of we're broadening our horizons and our topics of conversation over the years. Um, but, you know, it, it's very common to be known for your first big success. And, you know, it's it's now 20 years since I first started becoming interested in extreme programming and first started learning about test uh, back then, test first programming. Now, today, uh, also test driven development. And I went through a period of uh, uh, where I, I felt a little bit of resentment for always being asked to go back and talk about these old topics where I, you know, I've I've literally written a book on it. Um, I've written hundreds of thousands of words. I've spoken at a lot of conferences. I've done a lot of training and work and consulting, blah, blah, blah. And now I find that in the last few years, it's really nice to be able to go back and talk about these deep technical topics. I think I have gotten past this period of resentment for being asked only to do my greatest hits. Mm -hmm. uh, and now it feels a little bit like going back and going back in time 20 years and talking about the things that I cared about so deeply then, where I still carry about them now, but maybe don't have to confront the details quite so much from day to day. So it's nice to have this opportunity to start, uh, you know, we're still all programmers in mind and in heart, even if we like to think that we do more than that these days. Well, great yeah. to have you here. Hello. So in the warming up of this episode, we talked about universal architecture at um, yeah. JB, or UPoint, yeah. So what is your understanding of, of this term, universal architecture? Yeah, so uh, uh, I mean, as you, as you know, because I named my training course the world's best introduction to TDD, um, I like to have a little bit of fun with my marketing. And so whenever I come up with, whenever I... Um, try to popularize an idea. I try to come up with one of these silly, over-the-top names because I want it to be memorable. 
I don't genuinely believe that my TDD course is the world's best introduction to TDD, but it sounds better when you say it that way. And so the universal architect, but there is a little bit of truth in there, right? Uh, a, a, joke, a joke always works better when there's a little bit of truth inside. And so the universal architecture, um, it came about because I was finding it difficult to explain to people what I had learned from practicing test-driven development, how it affected the way that I designed software. Some of the lessons that I learned were um, seemed a little bit complicated. And I saw how other people uh, were describing it. And I felt like their models were a little bit too much directive. So the first thing that you'll know about the universal architecture when I describe it is that it, it's nothing new and it's very familiar to people out there who know some of the other um, ways to formulate it. What I like about my formulation is that it's a little bit more abstract, uh, which means that it's a little bit less directive. Where I try to describe more, what are the signs of good architecture instead of what are the steps to building good architecture so that you can recognize goodness when it's there. And so that there are the fewest limits possible on how you reach that point. And that's the sense in which it's the universal architecture because in, in a way it's like, it's. It's so abstract that it always works. But instead of just that in a meaningless way, it's actually, it always works and it's, and it actually helps. This sounds so it's like not a... one of those things that's true but useless, but it's as, um, it's as generally useful as I could possibly make it. So this sounds like it's, it's less of, this is exactly how you would de describe your architecture, but rather these are the steps to get to a way of describing an architecture. Compared now with, with role-playing games, the crazy idea that I just had, uh, where you have the various rule sets of Dungeons and & Dragons and all the various ones, and then you have some dedicated rule sets, which just describe, okay, whatever you have, think out of it, and you have your own setting then, uh, general unified role-playing system and uh, other systems. So is it one step uh, reduced, perhaps, then? More meta? So meta, I think. Um, yeah. Maybe I, I so the, the 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 universal architecture itself, the way I describe it, does describe what healthy dependencies in a system look like, and I yeah. also do try to describe ways to get there, but I try not to describe. I worry a little bit that some of the other models are more useful for the people who don't. You know, if you think about organizing your house for the first time or organizing your office, there are some people who need to be told that you should buy 12 boxes. You should mark the first box pen and pencils. You should mark the second box uh, USB cables. You should mark the third box like so, the fourth box like so. And then you don't have to worry about making decisions. You just follow the rules and 85%, the results will be 85% good you have a little bit less stress and then you can continue on with your day. And maybe three months later, six months later, a year later, you start to get the feeling like, ah, it's not quite the right set of boxes. I never use this ninth box over here. I never use this 11th box over there. And by this point, maybe you are ready for rules which are less prescriptive and less detailed. And so when you look at, for example, the ports and adapters architecture or the uh, onion architecture, they, they say in more detail which kinds of modules or classes or functions should go in which boxes. And what I wanted to do was to describe what all these ideas have in common so that for the experienced program, I could help you to see which were really the essential properties that make architecture better which reduce the cost of change, which reduce the cost of maintenance, all those things. But without sort of binding your wrists together and telling you that you must put the controllers in this box and the models in this box and the technology integration points in this box, and these interfaces should go here and those implementations should go there. More than that, what I really, what maybe the part that I have actually made a contribution instead of just describing other people's ideas and saying it a bit nicer is in focusing not on where should you put things, 
but on focusing on when you have the feeling that something is in the wrong place, you don't have to panic. You don't have to feel like you did a bad thing. It's not, you don't go into the confession box and confess your sins. Here are some ways of refactoring that will gradually make the code flow into the right place, if I can say the right place as a shorthand. So I'm more concerned, one of my little uh, rhymes, which is nice because it's easier to remember, is I do not care where the code goes. I care how the code flows. I want, when you figure out that some dependency doesn't feel right anymore, how can you make it better without throwing everything away and doing it again following the rules? Instead, I want to describe a path towards gradually improving the design. And I think that to do that, it doesn't work as well to say controllers go here, views go here, integration points go here, and so on. But to say, here are what healthy dependencies look like. Here are some basic rules. If you follow these basic rules, then yes, you will still have some problems. But at the big level, the dependencies will be generally in the right direction. And it would be easier to see when you're breaking the rules or when you have unhealthy dependencies in small places and how to fix it. You don't have to feel trapped by a previous bad decision. Or even better, you don't have to feel trapped by changing conditions where your decision used to be good and now doesn't work as well anymore. So yeah. that to me was really the big point of the universal architecture was to be able to say, I'm not telling you, you need 12 boxes and put this code in this box, but I want to give you an eye, a way of saying objectively, this code is in the wrong box. These boxes are in the wrong sequence. You should group them differently. And mm -hmm. then how to do it. So it's not it's not limited to some kind of architectural style or itself is not an architectural style, right? I, I guess you can use universal architecture and monoliths and, and maybe also on, on service-oriented architectures, but it's more like a general rules which which help you in, in getting your architecture right, right? This is and I would say even the word rule can cause some problems here that maybe mm. it's... So I like to think of it as a set of properties of... Um, harmonious architecture combined with some transformations that help you make your architecture gradually more harmonious over time. And mm -hmm. all these other models, I, as far as I've seen them, and there aren't very many, um, they all seem to be compatible with the universal architecture. I think of them like implementations of my interface, or I think of them like you know, there's this there's the chapter from the book Switch that the that talks about you must script the critical first steps. You can't just tell somebody to be happier if they're depressed. It might be true that in a way we are all in control of our own happiness and we can simply choose to feel happy. However, you might need some ideas about the first three or four steps that you can take, which can trick your brain into feeling happier so that you are spending less time in this depressed state. It's those critical first steps that might be missing from my model, which make their, their model more useful for some people. Um, for me, what's important is the compatibility there. So as you say, I, I think I describe more properties of good architecture and a way to make, a way to think about architecture so that we don't focus so much on doing things correctly but that we feel comfortable improving things over time. I don't want people to feel like they are a prisoner of a bad decision. I want to feel like they always have the freedom to improve things and the ability to judge, to notice, to recognize when things are getting better. Yeah, yeah, fully, fully agree, yeah. So David, since you had joined this, this workshop and learned about universal architecture, did you see some, were you able to use it in your projects so far? Definitely, yeah. Um, I think, as as Chevy mentioned, yeah, it's from from my point of view. And correct me if you see it differently. Yeah, it, it has, of course, um, commonalities to to onion architecture, to hexagonal architecture. But I think the way how you describe it is is is, is very is very refreshing in, in terms of, of, of being an, an engineer, right? Because thinking more about the why and the conceptual thing and, and not the 
ultimate goal is where you put in, in which folders in your EDA the class types, right? Um, so, so I fully agree with this, and I, I think that the way to get there, which you didn't um, cover too much now, is also very interesting. Yeah, because it's still it's still is kept in a very general way, right? You know what I mean. So it, it's not that you that you have this strict dogmatic rules. Um, these properties always drive you, right, to get there because it feels natural if you understand this architecture and if you learn abstract ways of how to get there. It's like if you just inherit them from the properties, right? You have these values and based on those values, you, you get your practices and, and, and principles, yeah. Um, so from this perspective, yeah, it's, it's, it's fully recommendable. I think you even wrote a blog post a few years ago on this, right? And I'm not sure if you still provide trainings on this topic in general, but it's, it's a very refreshing way of thinking and, and, and getting, I think, also hexagonal architecture is, is a term many developers don't fully understand because they, they are lost in this kind of complexity and what are ports and what are adapters and why is this now a port? Is this adapter? Where do put the database, right? We're just saying, yeah, build this kind of circle layers and, and, and you, you will understand what to put um, where naturally. Yeah? And is it, yeah. is it, does it feel like a, a complex or advanced topic then, David? Could you, could, would, you, would you be able to put this in, in, into effect immediately or do you need some experience with the different models then? It's, it's hard to answer this question. I mean... I'm putting you, I think you, you it, on the spotlight it, too. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think it feels right, honestly, yeah, because um, it tries to, to keep the complexity where the complexity should be, right? Not in the in the technical implementation of things, but in the in the domain of this thing, right? Um, we talked about. I think this was one of your to topics in this in, in this, this nearly seven minutes talk, yeah, about accidental and 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 what is the second in accidental and essential complications? Essential complexity, exactly. Yeah. And I think it focused mainly also to keep the accidental complexity low by don't following any dogmatic rules. Um, which just fulfill a specific architecture. I, yeah, I think that the um, obviously, I, well, not obviously. Um, yes, I prefer to avoid any kind of dogma. I don't want anyone to follow my rules or anybody else's rules just for the sake of following them because they are right somehow. Sometimes we need to follow rules before we understand what they mean. Yeah, exactly. Because in the process of following those rules, we we learn what they mean. This was, you know, this was how extreme programming started and was different from the other schools of agile thought. That extreme programming said, "Hey, uh, we have some pretty strong opinions about which things you should become good at, and as you become good at these things, then the lessons that you learn from being good at these things will affect your behavior in a positive way, instead of forcing you to discover all these things yourself." And some people prefer this pure discovery model and some people prefer the more directed model because they feel uh, some people want to make those decisions and fail and learn from their failures. And some people want a little bit more of guidance in the beginning so that they can get some good results. But then they want to be able to ask the questions, okay, yeah, I've been following these rules. I've been getting some good results. I'm curious what is the connection between the rules and the good results? Mm. And there's been a lot of argument, I think, in the in the software community in the last 20 years about which of these models is better. And I think I see more clearly now that the really the question, it's not a, a question of better or worse, but a question of which fits your personality mm. or your preferences more. Some people want to be, and it doesn't have to be a, a static property of the person. There are some things that I would like to learn completely by discovery. And so if you just drew for me the universal architecture and said nothing else, just draw the dependency diagram, didn't give me any of the here's how to refactor bit of it and said, okay, uh, congratulations, here, is the, here are the properties of good architecture, figure out how to make it happen. There are some cases in which I would be quite happy with that. And there are some cases in which I would look at that and say, well, yeah, that looks very good. I have no idea where to start. I have no idea if I'm going in a good direction. I have no idea what to do 
if I make a mistake. And the, one of the things that I really cared about with the with describing the universal architecture and describing the how code flows and how the the three um, you know how the two boundaries and the three sections of code uh, you know how they grow and shrink over time. Which code move? You know how does code move into the center? What are the patterns of how we move code into the center? All these things for me. My goal was to have a more hopeful model. I worry that when we have these prescriptive models, and I'm trying not to criticize their models, so I'm trying just pointing out a small problem, and that is that when someone gives you a bunch of rules, if you don't follow them, you start to feel some guilt. Not everyone feels it. Not everyone feels the same amount of it, but almost everyone feels more than zero. When they feel like they're somehow deep down, they feel like they're a bad person if they don't follow the right rules. And so I don't mind being a little bit more insistent, which some people might interpret as dogmatic, if I have a very, very small set of rules. Because if it's a very, very small set of rules, it's easier to justify. I'm not trying to constrain too much your behavior. I'm trying to figure out what is the essence. When Kent wrote about the four elements of simple design, that was another example of a very small set of rules that generates pretty good behavior most of the time and pretty good results most of the time. I wanted the universal architecture to feel a little bit like that. Okay, some, something yeah. nice and, 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 sorry, David, something nice and, and easily digestible, like a solid or like I said, the four simple yeah. rules of, four rules of simple design, something nice, small and catchy that is, that works on its own. Do I get that right? Yes. Yeah, no. And that's why I, I chose it's... those, that's why I chose those silly names. That's why I didn't. That's why I called it the happy zone and the mm. horrible outside world and the demilitarized zone. The reason to use these joking names is to try to make it memorable. It tried mm. to make it feel like uh, I want the programmer who has two years of experience or three years of experience, who has the aspiration to become an architect. We can discuss later whether that's a good idea. But if they have the aspiration to become an architect, to become a technical leader, I really want them to feel like this is within their grasp and that it's just a question of understanding a model that you're, an architect is not born. Yes, some people may have some extra cognitive capacity. Some people might have some extra interest and they learn things earlier. But there's nothing about, there's nothing magic about organizing software components well. There's nothing magic about putting code in a good place. There's nothing magic about seeing the dependencies between modules and feeling sad about it and wanting to do something and learning how small changes make things magically feel magic over two weeks or a month. Uh, I wanted something that felt uh, hopeful for people. Like they felt like I can learn this. And by giving it these cute names and by making, the, making it very simple and as you say, Christian, digestible, that's what I really hoped to achieve. And it seems at least, you know, at least one person in the world thinks it works. Good. Yeah, as you said, this, this kind of limited number of values, right, where you derived and um, your practices and, and principles. I think this is a, a underestimated power in software engineering, right? And, and it and it's it's quite popular when you take a look at liter literature, right? The extreme programming has has values, right, where they derive to principles and practices of. If you if you read the book about microservices from Sam Newman, he states clearly values, right? And he derives um, the architecture from these values. And if you read the values, right? And if you would just see the values, um, I think the chance is high that you would also come up with something like a microservice architecture, right? Um, so, so deriving from, from real values um, is, 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 I think, a fully underestimated thing and we mainly drive already by principles and practices but without really knowing what values they, 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 they fulfill right and so this is a really good fit yeah providing those values which you provided yeah i mean should we maybe go just two minutes or something like this into these three layers which you already yeah, stated yeah. the happy zone the dematerialized zone and the outside zone so that at least people who don't know them um, have a basic understanding yeah yes and since I'm since I'm uh, unfortunately not traveling to Europe this uh, autumn, I'm not going to be able to do that because I, I, I end up talking about this in, in every training course I do and it always comes up. And 
I'm not going to have the opportunity to practice it 12 or 15 times in front of an audience from September to December. So I guess this gives me a chance to do it. So the universal architecture is a description of essential properties that make code less expensive to change. And so what I want to describe are just rules of dependencies, which things are allowed to depend on other, which other things. And I'm presenting these as rules. Don't, you know, if you want to think of them as guidelines, you're not going to hurt my feelings. So now, uh, because I can't draw, we're going to use our imagination. So imagine a little circle in the middle that I call the happy zone. In the happy zone, it's always 26 degrees. It's sunny. It, the wind is nice breeze. Everything runs in memory. The tests run really fast. It's very easy to understand what's going on. You can use the substitution model of computing to reason about the code. You can run this on the Turing machine in your mind. It's very easy to understand, it's very easy to test, and it's very easy to change. I want as much code as possible to live in the happy zone. Now, I'm gonna draw another circle around the happy zone, and I'm not gonna talk about this inner band yet, but outside of those two circles is the horrible outside world. And the horrible outside world is horrible because that's where all the things that we hate live. HTTP, HTML, browsers, file systems, databases, um, annoying frameworks like Rails and Django and uh, uh, Elmish and uh, MVC and uh, depends on how far back you are. Sorry, um, MFC depends on how far back you want to go. Nothing wrong with MVC. MFC. Calm, Corba, all these platforms and frameworks and things that behave not so well are expensive to talk to, state changes even though you're not looking, and the horrible outside world makes our life very difficult. Unfortunately, our employers only pay us to talk to the horrible outside world. If, we, if all our code lives in the happy zone, then nothing interesting happens. At some point, somebody has to write something to a network or to a, a, a file. And so the horrible outside world is always threatening the happy zone. So we have this inner ring in between the two, which I call the demilitarized zone. And the job of the demilitarized zone is to protect the happy zone from the horrible outside world. So now we can decide what is allowed to depend on what. And this is where I would like to draw arrows in green, but I can't because we don't have that. It should be pretty obvious that the happy zone, if you're in the happy zone, you can depend on other things in the happy zone, no problem. If you're in the DMZ, you can depend on other things in the DMZ, no problem. If you're in the horrible outside world, you can depend on anything else in the horrible outside world. I don't care because I don't live there. You do what you want. It should probably be obvious that arrows pointing in towards the center are okay. So something in the demilitarized zone can depend on the, on the happy zone, no problem. The happy zone is happy for a reason. The happy zone is the fluffy kitten who's not going to hurt anyone, right? So anything can depend on the happy zone and everything is fine. You can draw arrows inward, no problem. And probably it's intuitively clear why it's okay to draw a line from the, an arrow from the horrible outside world into the DMZ. It would be nice if the horrible outside world can talk directly to our happy zone stuff. It's not always possible, so the DMC is a nice compromise. So, so far, everything is fine. Now, there's one green arrow that we have to draw because without this green arrow, nothing works. And that means that the DMZ is allowed to talk to the horrible outside world. And you can think of it this way. The DMZ talks to the horrible outside world to protect the happy zone. Without that arrow, nothing works. And now you have the red arrows, which are the two dependencies that I do not allow. And, that, and that's the short version for now. That from the happy zone to the DMZ is a bad idea. And from the happy zone to the horrible outside world is such a bad idea that if you draw that arrow, you're fired. <laughs> and really, really what I would say is if you draw that arrow and you don't see a problem with it, then maybe we have to have some conversation about your future with the company. <laughs> but it's a, so that's a very bad idea. When you draw when you draw the arrow the arrow from the happy zone out, you're creating problems. You're creating dependencies that are going to make your code harder to understand, harder to test, harder to reuse. And I know there's some controversy about reuse. Just if you follow these rules, then reuse happens by magic. It's great. So 
what really does this all mean? This means that when you draw those, when you have dependencies, which are those red arrows from the happy zone to outer zones, you are creating problems for yourself. Don't do that. And I will say your legacy code is 1.8 million red arrows. So then the strategy, the central strategy for fixing legacy code is simple. Find a red arrow and turn it green. And the good news is that there are mechanical transformations that can turn a red arrow green. So that they, I don't want to go into the details here because it's hard to see without a diagram. I really should just record a new version of this talk where I can draw and people can see. But the really important part is that the dependency inversion principle is what turns red arrows green. Mm -hmm. And essentially, there are two steps. If you can do it directly, you just invert the dependency and everything is fine. And when we work in functional programming languages, we tend to do it this way. We just invert the dependency. We can do this very easily in most, pro in most uh, functional programming languages, in all languages, but it's more natural in functional programming languages. In OO, we tend to do it in two steps. The first step is to extract an interface. And then the second step is to invert the dependency. As soon as you extract the interface, I didn't mention this earlier, interfaces live in the happy zone as long as all the data types involved are in the happy zone, right? If the input values and the output values are happy, then the interface is happy. What that means is that instead of talking to a class directly or a module directly, if you expose it through some interface or some API, some abstract function, in functional programming languages, you get it free, but in OO languages, you need something. When you talk through the interface instead of directly to the implementation, you're now talking to the happy zone. So you have, I'm talking to an interface in the happy zone. Something in the DMZ implements that interface. So the arrow is going in the correct direction and everyone's happy. And you can do this over and over and over again. You can always turn a red arrow green this way. A red arrow becomes either a green arrow by turning it around or it turns into two green arrows. And if you just, just do this over and over and over again, everything gets better. You become easier to change things because most of the code that you change lives in the happy zone where all the tests run in memory, everything talks to nice, well-defined interfaces with well-understood contracts, and it's very easy to do. That's the point. And the part that needs to talk to the horrible outside world lives in the DMZ. And as you refactor, the DMZ gets thinner, the happy zone gets fatter. And what you end up with is, is exactly the same thing as if you follow the idea of uh, functional core imperative shell. My yeah. DMZ is the imperative shell and my happy zone is the functional core. If you follow these principles, you don't get perfect design by magic, but what you get is maximum options to refactor the code uh, as cheaply as possible. The more code that lives in the happy zone, the easier it is to move it around and to organize it perfectly. Inside there, you can focus on figuring out how to create a nice dependency graph that looks like a tree where everything is talking to either simple values or interfaces, just like you would do in a functional programming language where instead of interfaces, you have functions and everything else is a value. And if you follow those rules, what you get is microservices in a single process. That's what I wanted to just, to, to, to just ask now. I mean, my happy zone can be your outside world, right? And this means, or this Al is- Almost never, map. but your happy, your happy zone might be my DMZ but it's very rare for your happy zone okay. to be in the horrible outside world. Okay, then let's say my, my happy zone is, is your DMC, and this is actually what, what microservices are all about, right? Yeah. So, so the, the idea is that if you follow these rules, then what, or these properties, code comes into the happy zone. Inside the happy zone, now it becomes much easier to use the other refactoring tools that we have, the other ideas, um, to form a nice dependency graph, which is a, a, an acyclic graph, where everything, again, you're talking to everything in value objects and uh, values and interfaces or functions. And if you do that, then the integration to the horrible outside world is limited to this one very narrow um, band around the outside. 
the you depend as little as possible on technology integration and it becomes very easy to change things. And like I said, what happens inside the happy zone is you have microservices in a single process. Mm -hmm. And if you can do microservices in a single process, you will have much more success when you, you then try to extract those microservices and distribute them. What you have is a nice slice of the pie. You have a lot of happy zone, a little bit of DMZ where you do the parsing and formatting of, actually not even, the parsing and formatting of JSON should probably be in the happy zone. But the transport with HTTP, that's mm -hmm. what the DMZ is for. And as quickly as possible, the maximum of your code doesn't even know that HTTP is in the picture, it doesn't care. It knows maybe the format of requests and responses, but it doesn't care about the transport and how that stuff works. And so if you follow these guidelines, again, it's much easier to create microservices in a single process. And then if you want to deploy this part as a remote service, it's relatively easy. What you get yeah. is confidence that when you break apart the monolith into smaller pieces, the smaller pieces will be suitable. You won't regret where you draw the lines between the pieces the way a lot of people do now. And especially because they have no confidence to refactor, once they break it apart into distributed services, they feel like they are in prison. They can't change their decisions. If yeah, you have yeah, the experience yeah. of refactoring like this, then you feel more confident to change your decisions when you realize that they were not good. Yeah, I fully agree. Yeah. I think this is one of the downsides, right? We, we invested years or even decades to improve our refactoring skills in our EDAs. Yeah. And most of the skills you lose when you go into distributed systems. Yeah. Um, well, and there's I don't know that you use them. I think that the, the big thing is that the experience that you gained by sharpening those skills helps you make better decisions up front in a distributed environment. And it's easier to mm. when you notice a problem, when you notice an unhealthy dependency in your distributed services, it feels less like oh, this is just how distributed services are, which is nonsense. That's not true at all. It's more like, okay, we made a bad decision about where the boundaries should be. The nice thing about distributed systems is that I can always hide five, I can always hide five things behind another API for three weeks while we figure out how to redistribute the boundaries. Mm -hmm. Just like we do when we refactor in a single process and we say, oh, these interfaces are too small now. Let me put them all together. Let me make one interface up here. I'll hide that from the rest of the code. And then in a few weeks, nobody will know that this used to be five little things killing each other, but now it's just one harmonious thing that implements an interface. Ah, why do we feel so restricted doing that in a distributed environment? If you build the skill in a single process where it's cheaper to change things, you will first make better decisions in a distributed environment. And second, you will feel less restricted when you realize you want to change something. Okay, and yeah. this would then also be even suitable for the extremest case of serverless, where we don't have just one function. Yeah, because we touched, yeah. I mean, uh, we touched this topic a few episodes ago as a side note, where, where, we, where we mentioned that we have this feeling that's the fatigue of, of, of clean code um, getting more because people say, hey, we're building super small microservices. We maybe just build super small lambdas. Um, why should we care so much about clean coding? And I think this is perfectly interluding into this topic, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it really does boil down to um, global variables are global variables. It doesn't matter where they are. If your global variable is some uh, shared memory somewhere that a bunch of distributed services are talking to and conflicting with each other and confusing each other. That's exactly the same as if that's a singleton in some Java application from 1997. It's the same problem. And if you don't recognize the problem in one environment, then you will not recognize the problem in the other environment and you will feel trapped. And feeling trapped in some as simple a programming model as putting everything in a single process in Smalltalk or Java or C Sharp or whatever. That's annoying, but we know how to help each other not to feel trapped anymore. But the, you know, when Martin Fowler said that architecture is the set of decisions that are uh, irreversible, I prefer to say that are too expensive to change. The risk is hard have, to change, right? 
Yeah, hard. I think originally he said irreversible, and then oh, he probably okay. Okay. softened that to hard to change. Yeah, and I like to say expensive to change because hard is not important. Our employers pay us to do hard things. They don't care if it's hard. They only care if it costs them too much money. So when we work in a distributed environment, we are making decisions that cost more to change. And so we do have to be a little bit more careful. If we have, if we don't build the skill and the confidence in our skill to guide designs to evolve, then we're back to the, I have to have the right number of boxes. I have to have them labeled correctly problem. We get back to, I have to know the right, what are the right rules? Then you wander the countryside begging for people to show you the right rules. You know the right rules if you know if you understand the properties that of a, of healthy dependencies or if you live the values, then you can look at the situation and decide what are the right rules for you. You don't get there until you practice. I guess some people might be born with it, but I haven't met them yet. And that's really where all of this that's where universal architecture, where evolutionary design, practicing test driven development, where those principles are really helpful. Um, it reminds me of um, the programmer anarchy uh, movement from several years ago. They were really the first group that I heard of who were doing distributed microservices successfully in an environment that was very fast paced, where the cost of failure could be quite high in terms of, of money. And it worked because most of them had a decade of experience doing evolutionary design. Most of them had a decade of experience doing refactoring. I believe that that not only helped them to understand good architecture, good design, but it also helped them feel confident changing things when they were wrong instead of being trapped by someone else's bad decision or being trapped by someone else's outdated decision. That to me is really the key point. I, I, you know, if I got to wave my magic wand, I would give every programmer out there the confidence that they know how to make the design better today, that they, that they can do something that they first, that they feel confident how to do it and that they feel confident will have the result that the design will be a little bit less expensive to change tomorrow than it is today. And that they can do that every day. And the results will feel like magic. Yeah, fully agree. I think this this nailed it. it. It's done really, really well. Yeah, to 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 all those questions we had now, also in comparison to microservices. I think it's a perfect fit there, yeah? um, because many people are of course interested in architectural principles, and many people have to deal with microservices. They often have the feeling that they stop to believe in this old. Um, values because to say we're building total different systems now, but I think you 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 proved them right in in, in telling them that yeah um, that, that they are still very valid yeah. and and time flies as usual when talking to you um, JB was it was a perfect discussion very fruitful thank you very much for this um, first of all and now we always have this 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 final question to our audience what what are your favorite meetups what are your what are your conferences you prefer to go especially in covid-19 times it would be very interesting for me also to hear from you where do you get new inspiration where do you get new yeah insights in in, in developers lives yeah so after four years of renting an apartment for three months a year in downtown Stockholm, I finally had the chance to uh, uh, attend the Stockholm Elm meetup group uh, mm -hmm. last year. And this year they have started doing Fika online. So you just gather with some coffee for 30 or 40 minutes and talk about what are you doing in Elm and uh, how are things going and what are you learning. And so I got a chance to participate in that last month and it's quite, uh, it's quite pleasant. It's, uh, so it's, it's a nice basis. opportunity to talk about Elm. Stockholm Elm. Cool. Okay, super. And yeah, that, that sounds interesting. So this is a different format, I would say, as this meetups usually, right? Yeah, this, the FICA is just more discussion, but they do have, uh, I guess they did and will again have the typical monthly meetup group with a couple of, couple of topics and then maybe some nice code together session in another room or something. Any conferences you visited um, remotely already, which you which you have insights in? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I, I, we were, we were supposed to go to DevConf 2020 in South Africa at the end of March, and that trip was canceled. Mm -hmm. So I had the opportunity to, uh, to uh, participate um, remotely, and that was quite nice. It's odd. I'm making plans again for, you know, for remote conferences coming up over the next few months. Um, what one did I just? I, I'm sorry, I don't even remember. I finally took the chance to just attend a conference mostly mm -hmm. as an attendee. Yeah, I did speak, cool. but it was just a short one. And uh, I love that, you know, it's just, it's nice to do that again. And it's more pleasant to do that from your home remotely where you feel like you can get up and walk away and come back and you don't, and nobody is going to have their feelings hurt by seeing somebody walking out of their talk. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really true, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I had, I, I attended two conferences now the past weeks, uh, two times uh, Go conferences. And mm. I've I've got mixed feelings and mixed experiences so far. So these were in two different um, platforms, and in in one they opened up uh, I would say um, essentially a speed dating networking. So where you, where people were connected for two and a half minutes and were able to talk, and then camera switched and gone. And it was it fun for the ride and curious curious concept. And this conference and at this conference we were also allowed to create our own groups. And one end, so mm. we don't have to stick to this fixed time format. So this was, an, well, curious and entertaining. Yeah. And the second one did have this networking only at a certain time and did not allow this this um, ad hoc groups to be established. So it felt more detached. Yeah, yeah. So I got mixed feelings about it. And then I also see the trend of of speakers pre-recording their talks and then it's essentially well watching a. YouTube playlist together, or at least to me, it feels like with some five minutes question time in between. So it's I'm I'm well mixed so far. I think there's a lot of, of learnings right now, right? So I see this also that organizers are following different approaches. Nobody really knows what is the best one, right? And it, I guess it also depends a little bit on the audience. Um, but it's really interesting, as you said. Yeah, uh, I, I think there are interesting remote formats. Um, but I personally fully miss the personal touch and, you know, um, the in-between um, talks, um, between the talks, yeah, you know, on the floors or at, at the lunch buffet or something like this. So, yeah. so I'm really I looking forward. Hopefully we get them back, yeah. At least, at least a, a small ratio of them, yeah. I see in Germany and Austria people starting to... To, to make something which is called uh, hybrid conferences. So you can go there, but you don't have to. So you can also watch it from, from right. at home. So this sounds to me quite reasonable, yeah. Um, but yeah, let's see how, how this journey yeah. goes. Yeah. I, I would like to experiment with something similar to open space, not in the sense of open space, but the, mm -hmm. the when I've been to conferences with an open space component, often what ends up happening is that's where discussions will go with the speakers after their talk. And so what I would routinely do is to schedule one or two sessions, just, you know, the doctor is in, come and talk about anything you want, where people are aware that it's going to happen. They can plan to attend or not attend, which is not the same as, oh, I see somebody at the pub or at the restaurant and I want to sit down next to them, where it really just comes down to chance who you talk to. There is some room for that as well, but it's nice if I know that, you know, Ward Cunningham is going to be at a conference and I want to sit and chat with him for a while. I like to at least have the opportunity to know where he will be instead of, you know, wandering the conference, hoping that I can find him. Yeah, and I think right. we could yeah. do something similar right. where maybe in, you know, either in the afternoon or in the days after the conference, just let everybody know, hey, you know. David's going to host a 90-minute um, coffee talk. Coffee for the people in the morning, wine for the people in the evening. Come and chat for a while, and you'll yeah, be there as long as there are people there. Something similar. Sounds like it. Sounds I, I, like a big topic, yeah. <laughs> and, and I can, well, from this point, I can speak from experience. The second Go conference, um, they had this sort of... Um, so after every talk, the speaker would be available in a separate room for extra uh, questions and answers for... Yeah half an hour, 40 minutes or something like that. On the downside, it was in parallel to the already two tracks present. So you had now the uh, that's, Yeah. I got lucky with the, with, uh, the South African conf uh, conference. I didn't want to do that. And I wasn't the last speaker. So I definitely did not want to interfere with anybody else. So we just said, okay, 
Um, my original plan was to do a, a master class there uh, the day after the conference, and obviously that didn't happen. So then I just said, okay, I'll have a two-hour session. I'll host it myself over uh, over Zoom because I can, and just invite everybody at the conference. If you feel like you want to talk to me a little bit more, talk to each other, I'll create a space where you can do that, and then we just do that whenever. It's a little bit harder to scale up to 20 speakers, um, but maybe that could be an interesting model uh, instead of having multiple day conferences, you know, one day of talks and then two days of office office hours sessions with some of the speakers mm -hmm. could be fun and could be a good way to create a little bit of that feeling of being together and a little bit of that feeling of uh, discussions that can happen naturally instead of this, you know, this restriction we have of having this uh, screen between us. Yeah. It sounds like something I should just go and do. Right, so <laughs> here you heard it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go You're not going to broadcast this, right? <laughs> <laughs> just, just for the sake of time, um, what, what is, what is up in in Vienna or in Austria? What, at least what I'm aware of. Feel free to to complete me, Christian. Um, so there's a new Rust meetup in Linz, what I what I read on Twitter, uh, which is fully remotely. So that's a good thing, right? Everybody could attend um, everything. Um, so it's not it's not just um, limited to Linz. Um, so Rust meetup in Linz and Vienna GS is starting to come back again, as far as I understood. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of lots of meetups in, in Vienna and, and conferences, of course, is still on hold mode. Um, but at least uh, Vienna GS is coming back yeah and with all this said um thanks again a lot jb rainsberger um for, for spending your time with us um, hope to see you next time um at some point in time face to face again yeah and yeah we're um, really missing yeah. our nice little neighborhood around potterstown so we hope that we can get back there next year oh cool yeah sure reach out for coffee yeah and yeah looking forward to meet again with our audience for another delicious cup of developing launch See you.